Well, I'll tell you, um, man, what a week. You know, as a new guy moving to this area, I'll tell you, the last week has been pretty eventful. I mean, as a guy coming from the West Coast to uh, Nashville, all of a sudden Nashville decided to have this thing called a tornado alert this week. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here hiding in the inner bathroom with my boys saying, hey guys, I want to run outside to uh, take a picture. I want to see the funnel cloud. My boys are like, no, no. <laughs> and then uh, this week, uh, like Gus alluded to, this small thing happened. No, I'm not wearing orange on purpose, but I'm, I'm learning that college football really does dominate the view of everything. I mean, it, looking out across the room, it's like the sun is coming up over the horizon because there is orange everywhere. But uh, probably the other thing that happened this week that's worth noting is uh, we're coming to a week in this series that, to be quite honest, has been very difficult. Not because it's, it's difficult to prepare um, by looking at the text, but it's, it's one of these texts that I think if you really dive into it, it, it hits us right where it counts. It convicts us and challenges us because today we come to Smyrna, the church that's known for persecution. And I'll be honest, as a 21st century American, as soon as I begin to talk about persecution, I struggle a little bit because that's been so far from my experience. And yet the reality is, if you've ever had the opportunity to sit with someone who comes from a persecuted country, you will watch is there is a joy and a life that radiates from them as they live that life. And I, and I want to I know uh, what that's like. I may not want the means, but there's something so beautiful there that... I hunger and I long for. And it's why, as we look at the passage that we'll be looking at today, I think it speaks so powerfully to us. And so if you have your Bible, uh, let me invite you to open up with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. The words will also be up on the screen if you'd like to follow along here. And here's what we're told. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, not Tennessee, write, the, first, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Wow. You know, as I read these words, I'm reminded that we're continuing on in this series that we're calling Seven Letters to Seven Churches. We're looking in a book that often gets a reputation for being a bit weird, the book of Revelation. And a lot of times when we look at the book of Revelation, what we have a tendency to go to are these images that we see in the book of things like seals and dragons and, you know, the ultimate culmination of, of what will be. And sometimes we can lose sight of what the book of Revelation is really all about. The full name of the book is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is all about revealing who Jesus is. And that's true even in the darkest moments of persecution. In fact, what I want to suggest to you as we look through this letter, kind of the key idea behind our message today is simply this. Is, uh, the church is invited to recognize that Jesus is bigger than any persecution that we may face. And the way in which we endure that persecution 
is through perspective. And as we begin to dive into that idea, I believe it begins in this recognition that there's a costly choice that has to be made. In fact, what I would call the costly choice of persecution. Now, the letter opens in verse 8 with this uh, call to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? As Levi reminded us last week, uh, these angels are likely the leaders uh, within that church. And when we begin to talk about Smyrna, we're reminded that uh, this is a city that played a key role in the ancient world. In fact, as we're talking about these letters, it may be helpful uh, to just put a little bit of a picture or a map up of uh, what this looks like. Uh, basically, the churches of Revelation uh, formed a kind of a circle path in what's now known as modern Turkey or Asia Minor. And in that time, the town of Smyrna was a, was a city uh, posted on the edge of the coast. And it was known for a couple of different things in the ancient world. Number one, it was a center of culture. But most importantly, it was one of the headquarters for what scholars have referred to as the Roman imperial cult. Basically, uh, Caesar believed himself to be God, and one of his desires was to build a temple to himself. And so there was actually in the ancient world a competition between a number of different cities, ten of them in fact, and Smyrna won. And there a temple was built to Caesar where Caesar was worshipped as God. Now to be a Christian in that community brought an intense amount of persecution and difficulty. Uh, to be counted as a follower of Jesus in that context meant to stand in direct opposition to all of the power and privilege of the culture that surrounded them. And one by one, the followers of Jesus in Smyrna counted a cost, a very pricely cost, and made the decision to follow Christ even there. It's why I love the words that Jesus speaks to the church as he seeks to reveal himself. The words of the first and the last. The words of him who died and came to life. You see, what Jesus is reminding this church is there is no circumstance, no difficulty, no persecution, no opposition that will ever hinder the advancement of who he is as the God of the universe. He is God and he stands above it all. And no matter what challenge or difficulty or circumstance we may face, the faithful testimony of brothers and sisters around the globe tell us the story of churches that are willing to cling to Jesus even when it costs them everything. I don't know about you, I want that kind of life. I want to be so convinced of the goodness of Jesus that everything else pales in comparison next to the reality of who he is. You know, it's interesting, if you study uh, the uh, stories of the ancient world, one of the things that you'll discover is one of the key figures, in Smyrna particularly, is one of the early church fathers, known as Polycarp. Um, kind of a weird name. But Polycarp was uh, a leader within the church, and eventually his stand for Jesus would result in him being burned at the stake for his opposition to Rome. He was so convinced of the goodness of Jesus that everything else paled in comparison next to it. And the more that I read the stories of him, the more that I hear the stories of brothers and sisters around the globe, the more I become convinced of this. It's that persecution 
is intimately connected to discipleship. Persecution is intimately connected to discipleship. It is a thoughtful, intentional, purposeful decision to follow no matter the cost. You know, when we begin to talk about persecution, I think it's important for us to take a step back and say, what is it? And at its core, I think Webster gives us one of the best definitions when he reminds us that persecution is to afflict, harass, or destroy for adherence to a particular creed or religious principles. Having said that, let me take a step back and explain what persecution isn't. Persecution is not retaliation that we receive for being a jerk. Persecution is not the loss of political privilege. Persecution is not the difficult circumstances that come our way. But persecution are the consequences of a thoughtful and intentional decision to follow Jesus, regardless of what the consequences may be. That's why it's so intimately connected with discipleship. And the more that I study the life of Polycarp and others throughout church history, the more I become convinced that persecution will call for us to make an intentional decision that is not just for those on the distant corners of the globe, but are an invitation to a lifestyle and a heart that even we can embrace. I think one of the most powerful descriptions of this life is actually found by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to this. Oh man, I want this kind of perspective. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. By the way, that word rubbish, great word study. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed in his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Whew. Man, I want to live with that kind of focus and perspective. But how? And as this passage begins to unfold itself, one of the things that we learn both from its example and from the stories of brothers and sisters around the globe is there are a number of thoughtful, purposeful, and intentional choices that the persecuted make that I believe can form a posture of the heart, even for us today. Look with me in verse 9. Jesus opens up there by saying, I know. Can we just, can we just stop for a second on those two words? Here's what Jesus doesn't say. Muscle it up and endure it. No, I know. Oh, this is so hard. His tender care and heart is so evident for his people. In fact, it bears noting that the church in Smyrna is one of the few churches in the letters to the churches that receive no rebuke or instruction for improvement um, among all the churches. And it really struck me this week, really, is there any other place where a lampstand shines the brightest than in the context of persecution? And as I look at the story of the church in Smyrna, the more that I am reminded that one of the greatest fears that we face when we go through persecution, if we go through persecution, is the fear that it's meaningless. 
And yet what Smyrna does is Smyrna shows us a beautiful way to redeem even these dark circumstances. And she begins by reminding us that Smyrna invites us to choose Christ over comfort. If you look with me again in verse 9, there Jesus tells us, hey, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty. In fact, the Greek here is particularly emphatic in the way that it emphasizes the connection between the two. To be a follower of Jesus in that context meant to be one who endured financial and practical impacts as a result of standing for your faith. You know, as I was thinking about it this week, it literally was the opposite of the impact that the fish symbol is supposed to have in our world today. You ever do that? You're flipping through, I don't know, do people still use the yellow pages? You know, you're flipping through the yellow pages and a business has a, has a fish on it and it's almost like an advertising symbol of, hey, come to my business because I'm a Christian. It was actually the exact opposite in the ancient world. Uh, to say that you're a Christian meant to find yourself in a place where you were being opposed and attacked because of your conviction for Christ. And I wonder sometimes when Christ begins to mess with our economics, is our commitment to faith the same? I mean, this is where the choices of Smyrna really start to mess with us. You know, for example, um, perhaps you've heard it said that here in the United States, we, we hold to inherent rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we recognize that it is the goal of any good government to protect those rights for us. But can I tell you, that is so we would have the rights, according to Jesus, to give away. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If you have your Bible, flip with me over to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And there Jesus, in this high call of discipleship, says this, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. Think about that for a second. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. There goes the pursuit of happiness. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take up our cross. There goes the safety and the right to life. And what about following me? It's the call to place our liberty squarely at the foot of the cross. And you know what Jesus says? Do you know how often we're supposed to have this posture? Daily. In fact, one of the questions that often haunts me in my own journey of following Jesus is when was the last time the presence of Jesus in my life interrupted my day? When was the last time that the presence of Jesus in my life called me to do something differently because of the presence of his kingdom? And when we understand that we stand toe-to-toe with those around the globe who laid down their life, their liberty, their happiness, because they know the truth of these words, that whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. It's an incredible heart posture and invitation for those of us who follow Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Because as the passage goes on, we're reminded that Smyrna invites us to choose Christ over reputation. 
Again, we know quite a bit about this church in Smyrna because of the writings of Polycarp. And it's in the story of his life, the, the martyrdom of Polycarp, we're told that when Polycarp confessed that he was a Christian, the local synagogue rose up in wrath against them. In other words, uh, what began to happen is the local Jewish congregation began to falsely accuse both Polycarp and the Christians within the community. In fact, uh, it leads Jesus to say through John that uh, these persecutions that are coming are not just coming at the hands of people, but they are a tool that is actually being empowered by the evil one. And yet what Polycarp and others within the church do is they choose intentionally to lay their reputation to the side for the advancement of the gospel. You know, years ago, I first learned of an organization called 21 Martyrs. Have any of you heard about this organization? There are many other uh, organizations, Voice of the Martyrs. And, and some of these organizations, they're very difficult, and yet at the same time, very challenging to read. And one of the stories that I love about 21 Martyrs was the impact that it had on me when I first learned about them. Basically, they did a promotional video telling the stories of 21 martyrs that were brutally murdered in Egypt for their stand for the faith. At the end of the story, they flash the names of the different victims. And there was one that just caught my attention. And it just said, a worker from and the name of his village. And honestly, I got a little angry. I'm like, dude, this guy laid down his life for the gospel, and all that we know about him is the village he was from. Come on. And instantly, I just sensed the Lord convict me. No, you got it backwards. What an incredible honor and privilege that at the end of your days, the only thing that people knew about you was that you loved Jesus so much that you laid down your life to make him known. Is there a greater privilege that can be spoken over our lives? Friends, as we learn the stories of people who laid on their life for the gospel, we find a beautiful, beautiful invitation to see the story of these lives that are radically lived for the gospel, that set comfort that set reputation to the side with the singular desire of making Jesus famous. Polycarp, those in the church of Smyrna, would be those that were slandered and accused, and yet they still stood in the hope that Jesus is the one who sets the score. And that leads us then to the third choice I see them make, that the church in Smyrna invites us to choose faith over fear. If you look with me in verse 10, there Jesus says to the church, don't fear. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Whew. You see, the church in Smyrna would ultimately go through incredible persecution. They would be thrown in prison. And, and what we seem to infer and what we know from history is that ultimately this tribulation would end in their laying down of their lives. And the promise that Jesus gives them 
is that I will be the one who will give you the crown of life. Again, friends, I think we do well here to pause and recognize that there's a very real evil one that is at work to hinder the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. And one of the beautiful invitations that we have as we follow Jesus is to recognize that whatever threats, difficulties, or challenges he brings our way, we have this hope. Christ is greater. Years ago, I heard a speaker from one of these countries speak, and he, he made a bold statement that has just written itself deeply on the corners of my heart. And he just simply said this, the kingdom of God is coming and there's nothing anybody can do about it. The kingdom of God is coming and there's nothing anybody can do about it. And the call that Jesus gives us is even when we are called upon to suffer, even when we know difficulty to recognize that he is faithful and we are invited to do the same. And the promise is that in the end, even if it requires the laying down of this life, we have the hope of the crown of life that is to come. It's why he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, what he's saying here is that if we have been transformed by the grace in the presence of Christ, if we have remained faithful, he will be faithful to protect our life, not in this life that is fleeting and passing, but in the life that is forever to come. And if you study church history, one of the things that you will see so often is the faithful example of men and women who have lived this kind of life. You know, often we go to Hebrews chapter 11 and we celebrate these beautiful stories of faith. You know, people of things that have received their dead back or, you know, stories of Moses who parted seas. But we often skip over the latter part of that chapter. Let me share that with you. That some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So good. You see, faith most powerfully reveals itself in the sufferings and the difficulties that persecution brings. That's why I've always been so taken by the words of Tertullian, who said that it is the blood of the martyrs that is the water of the church. And church history will tell you again and again that when we adapt a posture of Christ only, Christ everything above every other thing, even life, safety, comfort, and reputation, that the world sees the beauty and the power of God in its most brightest displays. So what do we do with that? I'm reminded again of the words of Nate Saint. If you don't know his story, he was a missionary uh, who was sent to Central America and ultimately laid down his life shortly after arriving there. And he makes this powerful invitation to you and I when he writes these words, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot lose or cannot keep 
in order to gain that which he cannot lose. What would it look like if we began to live with that Luke 9 kind of posture? Where every day and every thought and every action, our question became, God, let us live with such a focus that even if persecution, difficulty, or the opportunity would come to surrender our life to you, we would say yes. Because you're good. Because you're faithful. Because you're worth it. And ultimately, I think the question that it leaves us with today is simply this. Where today? Might Jesus be inviting us to see persecution as an opportunity to count the cost of following him? You might say, well, Ryan, I don't, I don't have any persecution in my life. Yeah, I don't think many of us do. But what if we were to begin by living a persecuted kind of mindset? Not by being some victim where we simply allow things to happen to us, but rather we thoughtfully and intentionally make the decision first. I am going to follow Jesus no matter what the cost may be. You see, the way in which the ancient church endured that was by being reminded of who Jesus was, by being reminded by Jesus that he stands above it all. And are there really few other places where we can be reminded of that truth than around what we call communion or the Lord's table? You know, if this is your first time to fellowship, uh, we would tell you that this table is really open to all those who have placed their faith in Christ. And in this table, we don't believe anything mystical or magical happens, but rather it is a way for us to remember, to reflect, and to remind our heart of who Jesus really is. You know, we're told this, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Did you catch in Paul's words, it is a fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus? Anytime we endure suffering from the gospel, we follow in the footsteps of the one who has gone before. And he said, I love you so much that I'm willing to go to the cross for you. And his body was rendered. In the same way, he took up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the reminder that your hope is sealed not in your ability to hold on to me, but in my faithfulness to hold on to you by giving the extravagant gift of my love. And he says that in eating this bread and drinking this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. We say something around this table to our hearts, into the world. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as they lead us in this last song of worship, I'm going to invite you to come. And as you do, I wonder, is there something that Jesus is inviting you to count the cost in? Will you make me greater than your safety and your comfort? Will you make making a name for me far greater than making a name for yourself? And in the hope and the promise that he really is greater than it all. Would we be willing to come? And so as you feel led, after you've done that business with Jesus, I just encourage you to come forward. To take a piece of bread and to dip it in the juice. As a symbol that we want to be saturated with the presence of Jesus. And then we take. 
For those of you that uh, are gluten-free, we do have a gluten-free option in the back. Uh, I always get backwards on left to right on the this side. So uh, that's there for you as well. But in the hope and the call of the life we see at Smyrna, in the hope and the call of the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. God, we declare that even at the end of time, everything in the universe will proclaim you're worthy. Jesus, thank you for the extravagant sacrifice of your love. And Lord, we want to follow you. God, we want to know fellowship with you, not just in the good things, but even fellowship in your suffering. If it means it will draw us closer to you. Holy Spirit, we ask that by your grace, you would fill us, you would transform us, and you would shape us for your glory. Oh Lord, we love you so much. Have our hearts today to the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Amen.